In this episode, we're going to talk about money fitness. What do we need to know about money that we don't get taught at school? What can we do to make the most of our income? And what else can you invest in besides property? Welcome to Your First Home Buyer Guide, the podcast for first home buyers who want to get it right. I'm Megan and that was Veronica. We're both buyers agents and probably old enough to be your mums. But that's a good thing because between us, we've got over 40 years experience and we are going to share with you bucket loads of stories about avoidable mistakes. Together, we're going to make sure that you get unbiased and real information that you can rely on so you can get where you want to be without missing a step. Now, we've got loads of great tips for you in this episode. And if you'd like more useful tools, head over to the website homebuyeracademy.com.au. There you'll find free checklists that you can download, a free mini course on how to price a property and our where to buy workshop for only $39. Priceless stuff, really. Bargain. But before we get into the interesting stuff in this week's episode, here's the boring bit, the disclaimer. You of course know that nothing in this podcast is to be taken as personal advice. We always recommend getting the advice of an expert in their field of expertise. Now, we've done our very best to ensure that the content is correct at the time of recording, but things change. So check with the relevant government authority or your advisors to get the most up-to-date information. Today, we're talking about money fitness with Owen Raskovich, host of the Australian Finance Podcast and the Australian Investors Podcast. Owen is really passionate about educating people about money management and investing, and there's a whole heap of beginner-friendly courses available on his website, and I'll include the link in the show notes. We've invited Owen to join us today because not only can he share some great budgeting and finance tips, but there is one thing that a lot of property people don't like to do, but we're up for, and that is discussing other investment opportunities beyond real estate. Stick around to find out exactly why we want to discuss this. So true. You've got to keep your mind open, Veronica. Not everybody should own a property and that's a really important message and some people who have done our course have have come to that realisation through that process. Welcome, Owen. Really great to have you on the show. We talk a great deal about how important it is to have your support crew in place, the right people doing the right jobs with the right expertise right up front. So not halfway through the process, but right from the (laughs) beginning. So we're very excited to have you here because one of the things that we think is really important, and I'm sure that this is a big part of what you're going to talk to us about today, is money fitness. Now, what comes to mind? What is that? Tell us a little bit more about that. Well, firstly, thanks for having me on the show. Um, Lovely to meet you, Megan. It's the first time we've um, done a podcast together. So it's great. Um, Yeah, so money fitness. I guess there's a lot of analogies between um, health, as in, you know, when we talk about, you know, physical health and and that of money and being uh, financially healthy. And I think, you know, one of the things that always springs to my mind is making sure that you're flexible. So, you know, you don't want to do yourself an injury um, when you're playing sports. And the easiest way to avoid that is to rem- uh, remain flexible and to, to to do stretches and those types of things. And when it comes to finance, I guess the analogy would be that you want to have your finances in a position and in a situation where they can deal with just about anything. And so whatever the curveball that comes at you, uh, you can deal with that and you can just take it in your stride and keep going. And so 
for me, as I was jotting down some notes ahead of this, this podcast, I thought to myself, what's probably my number one tip? Just, just straight off the, straight off the bat, us. number Come one. On. And that would be, and no doubt you guys are going to talk about this as the series go, goes on, but it's about having that emergency fund. So, mm. we, you know, we talk about deposits and, and saving up for a first home, but what's really po- important throughout your entire journey, not just, you know, pre-purchase, but also after you've bought a house is having that emergency fund. And that's something that people often overlook. You know, they often go straight for kicking goals with investments and that type of thing. But the thing that they neglect is an ability to be flexible with their money. And that comes from having that emergency fund. So we're talking about three to six months, ideally six months of cash, just sitting in a bank account or an offset account, um, just for those, you know, rainy day things. So um, the car f- fix up, the, the the flight that you need to get to go see a, a, f- a family member who's sick or unwell or time off work. You know, these are the things that spring to mind when I think of emergency fund and what it's used for. That's, that's Such- really hard for first time buyers, isn't it? Because one of the things that we are, you know, one of the big problems that most, uh, most first time buyers face is how to save their deposit. You know, they're really working mm. hard to get that 10 or 20%, depending on whether they're going to LMI territory. And, and they use up every cent that they have to put into the property and the costs of purchasing the property. So, you know, is there, are there some tips that you can give people about how to allocate and make sure that they do have that, that extra fund there? Because, mm. it, you know, if they're using all their deposit to get the biggest, best house that they can possibly afford, um, then it doesn't leave much in that emergency fund. No, that's right. And in an ideal world, Megan, what we would have is a first home buyer who has the deposit and um, the money set aside for an emergency fund. So when I say emergency fund, that's not used for investing or for purchasing a home. Ideally, that's used um, on top of or it's sitting aside to the actual deposit that you need. And so one thing that you know, I, I, I kind of stumbled upon when I was speaking to a really good mortgage broker um, was that if you do save up your deposit, what you can what you can find with a really good broker, and this this is if you want to go down the LMI route, is um you can actually sometimes keep that deposit, take a larger loan, and have that money just sitting in your offset account. So then, effectively, your deposit becomes um, your emergency fund once you've got the house. So oh, that's, that's that's a different a, way to look at it. Okay. Yes, yeah, so that's kind yeah. of a, a workaround, mm-hmm. um, and it's not ideal for everyone because then obviously you've got a bigger loan. So there are drawbacks to that. Mm-hmm. But in the meantime, in terms of saving the money. Um, one of the questions I know we're going to talk about is, and this is something that I probably get every day, to be honest, is, you know, hey, Owen, I've got this money. Um, it's not growing fast enough because mm. interest rates are X. Now what do I do with my money? Can I put that in the share market? And my answer and the answer of almost every good um, investment professional is no. Yep. So <laughs> um, the reality is that it sucks to put that money in a term deposit right now when you're getting interest rates mm. of um, 0.5%, 1% if you're lucky. Um, but the reality is that the stock market, while it has done extremely well over the past 10 years, could have done maybe the opposite. And from one year to the next, it can fall 20 or 30%. So imagine you've saved up 80 or $100,000 for a deposit, which is a great, great effort. Imagine then in the next year, because you think, oh, I need to get ahead faster, that FOMO kicks in. And you think, okay, I'm going to put this in the stock market. I'm just going to go with something defensive, air quotes. And it falls 30%. All of a sudden, in a year from now, you're $100,000 or $70,000, and you're probably much further behind than you otherwise would be. So one of the best pieces of financial advice, and um, this is actually a joke amongst financial planners, is that the best piece of advice you can give anyone is earn more. 
because <laughs> it just it just makes sense, right? Just earn more, and then you yeah. don't have an, don't, so, don't have as many issues. Can I can I wrap that up succinctly and say yeah. um, there's no fast track? Yeah. That's what I should have said. Yep, good answer. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's about it's about being a bit bit more patient and not trying to certainly someone who's really high on the risk risk. Um, uh, you know, they, they they're comfortable with risk. Um, that might be a gamble, and I'm going to call it a gamble. That might be a gamble they're prepared to take. But for mm. most people, saving up that much money actually takes years, mm. um, and putting it into a, a volatile um, marketplace such as the share market could just have that, as you say, that reverse effect. Yeah, and and so just for some, um, just to lead on from that, um, I've heard some disaster stories which probably turned out favourable for the the people, but parents giving their children advice that they should put their deposit in Bitcoin because it seems to be going up <laughs> and all types of craziness. Um, and, you know, from in certain windows, um, because of our recency bias, we tend to look at the performance of these things and go, oh, yeah, over the past year, it's done really well. But that says nothing about what's going to happen in the next year. So you've got to be really mindful of that. But just in terms of some tips, Megan, just to come back to those tips, you know, I said the joke amongst financial planners is earn more. Well, there's really only two things you can do and anyone can do is that earn more or spend less i'm so, taking notes here by the way <laughs> yeah. so, so the way that you can earn more can be actually quite um, simple and quite quirky for example if you're a younger person um you might be able to get a second job on the weekend um, mm. i know it sounds tough but you could do that for six to 12 months another way and you can do that with the gig economy you can drive for uber you can do jobs odd jobs on air task a freelancer all these places the other thing you can do and this might be available to you is you can sell things you don't need so that actually juices your emergency fund really quickly. We There was a study that came out a few years ago, I think it was about two years ago by the government, and it effectively said that 20% of Australians cannot save $2,000 for an emergency fund. And that is very, very wow. alarming when you mm, think about that. It's living weight to weight, yeah. paycheck to paycheck. It, it is. And so a, a, a simple fix, I'm going to say simple, I'm not going to say it's easy, but a simple fix is look at the stuff around you and see mm. if you can sell some of it. You know, some of us will walk around with $2,000 iPhones, but we don't have $2,000 for an emergency fund. Um, and that kind of thing, it just kind of like boggles the mind. Um, but that's a really simple step. The other thing is when you're in a first home buyer territory and you're thinking about saving money, that oftentimes the biggest thing that you can do is get rid of your, your second car if you're in a relationship, is get rid of that car. Because the car, even though it might cost you on paper you know, two or $300 a month in repayments if you've got a personal loan. Hmm. There's also all of the things that go with that are kind of hidden costs, things like tolls, fuel, servicing, tires, everything that goes into that. And it can amount to maybe $10,000 a year if you've got a certain car. Hmm. So if you can get rid of that and you can do it rough, catch the public transport, buy a secondhand car, you know, um, there are online auction places where you can go and you can get secondhand cars that are probably better than the one you have now for less without a loan. And so go get, go, yeah, exactly. If you need to go to the, you know, Ikea to get furniture and you're worried about, you know, will I have a car? Use go get, which is just a higher service. Fabulous. Yeah. Being really creative in this way um, and seeing what you can get away with is actually really powerful because it kind of resets expectations for later in life as well. Buy a so coffee machine. Of things. Buy a coffee machine. Yeah. And you could probably buy <laughs> yeah. one secondhand if you've got Facebook marketplace. Yeah. <laughs> Some great I- tips in there, Veronica. There's, they're really good tips, and it's very true that you know once you've got a mortgage, then you've, you're, you're forced to continue saving effectively because you're then paying you're paying it back. 
The thing, though, that is um, that's interesting there, I love that, you know, earn more money. And I, I remember having two jobs and all that sort of thing, you know, I was yeah. saving a deposit and it is important. But the emergency fund, and that is, you know, something that you raised there, Megan, yes, that's such a hard thing to think about when you think, oh, my God, every cent that I've got is going towards a deposit. Mm. If you don't have one and something happens, then everything that you've worked at, worked towards is eroded if you're forced to sell the property. So it really is so important. Um, And this is one of the reasons why we do talk about getting a, a really good broker early on, you know, in, in our uh, the PACE system that the whole, our whole course is built around, the first bit preparation, the whole, you know, the you're getting your support crew is number one. Before you, do, before you even really save your deposit, you sort of got to know before who you're you going to need advice from. you step out the door from. or get online to search. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's like while you're saving the deposit effectively, the support crew, where's the information going to come from? And getting a good broker that can actually be creative with that. And I love that. It's funny because when you sort of said about emergency fund and I thought, oh, and I jotted down LMI and then you brought it up. And it is one of those things that it, it's a cost and, and, and it's easy to focus on that, but then being creative around, well, how do you, how do you um, allocate all that money uh, is really important. Now, when it comes to money fitness, I mean, we aren't taught this stuff at school. I mean, I remember being taught compound interest and that's sort of about mm. it, you know, and you get taught about budgeting and that's an awful word because it sounds a bit like going on a diet. Um, where do you start? You know, if you have not been educated in this area and you think, God, you know, I'm going to buy a house and, well, I hope to buy a house, you know, <laughs> I've got to do all this stuff. Where do you, what's the first step? So I, I think one of the things that we often miss and even as professionals we often miss this is that the single most powerful thing um, about money and about saving and about investing is it actually has nothing to do with numbers and all to do with your behavior. So how you act, how you live your life is actually a pretty good reflection of how you'll do with money. And so, for example, if you're the type of person who likes to be considered and think about your options, um, you know, you're willing to forgo that kind, those kind of really rough behavioural biases that we succumb to, things like FOMO, like fear of missing out, mm. you know, when everyone else is doing it, everyone else is making money in Bitcoin or, you know, they're buying these weird yeah. mining stocks on the stock market. So those are the types of things that um, really lead us astray. And so if you think about the most successful people around you, chances are what you'll find is they're very considered people and they're, they're people that tend to think before they act. Um, And that's very important when it comes to money and and even budgeting in general, because oftentimes you can put all these wonderful things down in a spreadsheet, but what it comes back to is what you're prepared to sacrifice. And that's all about behavior. Mm. So saving money is about what you are prepared to sacrifice. And for some people, it's very hard to sacrifice things. So things like going to the movies or going out with a friend at at the bar and and buying $200 worth of beer or wine or whatever you're spending your money on. Those types of things are sacrifices that you need to make every day. And your spreadsheet isn't going to say to you, oh, don't worry, you'll be all right. Here's the, you know, this is what's on the other side. The thing is here, it's, and this is something I've read from a book, uh, in a book recently, is that it's about being reasonable with money and not being rational. So people try to put it in a spreadsheet and say, I'm going to save, you know, 20% of my income. This is excluding super, so super would be on top of this. I'm going to put 50% away into living expenses or just costs of life. Um, and then 30%, it goes into those wants. So things like going out or, you know, a fancy car and the like. But that 20% is often, you know, very 
much okay for a lot of people, but not okay for some. And then what happens is we tend to get really down with ourselves when we don't achieve that. Mm. And that's where that behavioral kind of reinforcement has to kick in for you. So you have to think, yeah, you know what? I ate into my emergency fund. I didn't get my 20% target, but I'm going to start with 5%. I'm going to start with 2% this month and just try and get those feedback loops, those positive feedback loops rolling. So for budgeting, the things that this is the thing that we should be taught at school instead of pi r cubed equals the volume of a circle. <laughs> um, what we what we should be taught is that it's okay to not uh, know much about money. It's okay to ask questions. It's okay to have to go and read or listen to a podcast or speak with someone. And money shouldn't be a, a thing that we we think about and we're we're scared or we're uh, intimidated. I was very intimidated when I was younger. I, I come from a background where money was a very stressful thing mm. um, and that led to more of these bad emotions and biases going on. So the things we should be taught at school in summary, are it has more to do with who you are and just letting go of those beliefs that, you know, you might not be able to save as much as someone else and that's okay. You know, let go of that belief that you've got to, you know, you've got to track what the Kardashians are doing or whatever they're doing. That's okay. Um, the other thing is, I would say, another thing that we're not taught at school and something that we see a lot in Australia is the price of something doesn't necessarily reflect its quality. <laughs> so if you're budgeting um, and you're thinking, you know, I need to go and buy the good oatmeal because it's it's the good stuff, it's the brand stuff, oftentimes that's not true. And, again, it comes back to what you're prepared to sacrifice. So cutting down on those things um, can make a big difference at the end of the day. Um and in terms of in terms of budgeting, just know where your money is because a lot of the times for most people, it's very revealing to find out what subscriptions are coming out of your bank account. And you can do that by asking your bank for a list of direct deposits or just cutting up your debit and your credit card. Like that stuff is a really easy fix. If you want to stop things coming out of your bank account, cut up your bank account, change banks, do something like that. And that's a really <laughs> easy way to do it um, because, you know, those are just simple steps. And you notice how I focus on um, behavior more mm. so than the numbers, because if we say numbers like save 20% of your income, which I think is ideal, by the way, if you can do that, fantastic, mm-hmm. go ahead and do that. But you notice they're focused on that because sometimes those spreadsheets don't work for everyone. It's I'm very to, uh, interesting. I'm going to give you one word, Owen. Um, mm-hmm. Afterpay. Afterpay. Ah. <laughs> yeah. Talk to okay. us about that. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so um, this, is a, this is an interesting one, right? Because this comes back to the behavioral element. So. Mm. Our minds are wired, our monkey brains are wired so that instant gratification is something that, um, you know, we, we, we kind of live on. We, we feed on that mm. instant gratification. So the sooner we have something, the better it is. Like if you go up to a child and you say, I'll give you $100 worth of um, lollipops right now, or I'll give you $110 in a year from now. So this is the, the time value of money trick, right? That's a 10% return in a year. They're almost always going to take the lollipop. It's the marshmallow mm. test. Have you exactly, heard of that? Exactly, marshmallow yeah. test. It's the marshmallow yeah, exactly. test. Mm. You, they just there's no concept of like you know Delay. delaying <laughs> the gratification <laughs> so that then you can make a good return, right? Yeah. So that's have you again heard, how. Have, have you heard yeah. the line from Homer Simpson? Ah, no, oh, that's you? a problem for future Homer. I sure that's don't it. admire that. That's guy. a great one. <laughs> that's great. I haven't heard of that, but that that works, right? Mm. And so afterpay is built on that. It's built upon instant gratification. It's bringing forward a purchasing decision. So you bring forward, this is not afterpay, it's every buy now, pay later company. Mm -hmm. Um, It brings forward the gratification that you get from an object. And the problem is oftentimes when you, when you get that, you realize it's not that big of a deal and you probably didn't need to buy it in the first place. But 
the way this loops back into another behavioural element, which we just talked about, is that if you use Afterpay wisely, it's actually a really good budgeting tool. Mm. Now, I'm always scared to say that because then people <laughs> fly off the radar and they're like, I wouldn't just said this buy now, pay later thing's fantastic. We should go and do it. Use it. Yeah, Mm. use it. Go and get an afterpay account, yeah? If. But yeah, Yeah. if if (laughs) you can use it wisely, you pay it back, you don't have to, you know, budgeting's not an issue for you. I know people, um, not to butter my own bread here, but I know people that are multimillionaires who use afterpay for their budgeting because for them, it's there's no cost associated with it, right? Mm. That's not the same with all of those providers, but it's just this one in general. Um, But then there are people who get, one um, afterpay debt and they go to Zip, then they go to all of the other buy now, pay later providers and all of a sudden they've got a lot of debt. And the way I think about that and what scares me about that is that in my mind and the way I look at it as a financial professional is that's exactly the same as having a credit card because it does things to you emotionally and behaviourally that would be akin to, you know, family violence or domestic abuse, that type of stress that you feel in your life. That's mm. where that leads. And you do not want that in your life. So I don't use Afterpay. I've got an account. I don't use it. Um, I don't recommend people use that type of thing, but just be mindful that there are two ways to use almost everything in life. And you've got to know what you're getting yourself into and what the risks are before you do. It comes back to that with a, um, with a first time buyer the other day and, and they were talking about um, you know, how, how to actually start becoming financially fit. And, and they, you know, you talk about behaviour and, and, and FOMO and this is a really sad situation that the salesperson actually said to them, well, if you can't afford um, to pay $500 today, just after pay it. Hmm. Yeah. And, and that, that was, that, that's the key, right? Can't afford. Yeah. Yeah. That's if you it. can't afford it now, you can't afford it in the future. Well, that's, yeah, and that's a, mm. that's a fair criticism of all of those things. And it's the same I would say with a lot of the material objects that we get in life. So things like cars and these, the three of us know that these are assets or objects, material items that we would associate with bad debt, right? Mm. So these are bad debts. There are good debts Mm. and there are bad debts and anything that you purchase using credit or a loan um, that is a a bad debt. So an asset that typically falls down in value as soon as you take it out of the, the shop, that is something that you should not be using finance for. If there is something like a home and it's a you know a primary residence or an investment property, those are assets that go up. Mm. So if you can manage can that debt. Go up. Can, 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 can go up. Can, can <laughs> go up. Hopefully exactly. go Select up. the right yeah. asset. Fingers crossed. Yes. Uh, yeah. no, well, no, the- no, no, no crossing of fingers. No, <laughs> no. there is actually a methodolo- methodology to <laughs> no. follow to choose the right asset. <laughs> no, that's right. And I was, I was listening to your most recent podcast. It's on the website this morning. And you talked about that at length, right? And if you do purchase a good asset, it's like people use debt for shares, which I'm would never advocate for them against that. Not okay. because they um, they don't go up over time, tend, tend to go or can go up over time. Mm. The point is that they're more volatile yeah. and mm. the banks aren't as generous with their rates that they offer you. But yet, so the point here is that if you're going to use any type of credit or loan financing, whatever you want to call it, to buy something, make sure it's something that is investment grade. Mm. So that's a really good fundamental for buying a house or an apartment. I am curious, though, because, of course, some people might choose to share, to invest in the share market at the same time as um, saving for a home loan Mm. uh, or for a home deposit. Um, 
you know, why would someone do that? And I guess what sort of person, uh, what sort of situation might lend itself to that being uh, an approach? So uh, you've probably seen that tortilla or taco ad and it's got the little girl and I can't repeat her Spanish, but what she says is it's a debate between hard shell tacos and soft shell tacos. Mm. And she (laughs) says, why not have both? Mm. And I think that's a great approach. So one thing that we emphasize um, at our business, Rask Australia, what we emphasize is that we're not going to tell you if you should buy that property and not buy that one or buy that share and not buy the share, although that's what we do, um, or do this, don't do that. What we're saying is it's okay to do a little bit of everything. Mm. What If you look around you and you study the most successful people you know, so when I say successful, I mean financially successful. If you look around you and you see and you take stock of the people around you, I'd be willing to bet that almost all of them have owned something that creates value. So they haven't worked harder. (laughs) They've owned a business or they've owned an asset that's gone up in value, right? The key here is accumulate assets. So an asset could be a share, it could be an ETF, it could be a property. I don't know, whatever it could be that you're into, maybe exotic surfboards that go up in value. I don't know (laughs) what they are, but you could have something that goes up in value. And so what the, the key thing here is that if you want to do all of those things, go and do them. But also make sure that that emergency fund is not touched. And if you do have a goal of saving a home, just make sure that that money that you've got in the stock market isn't getting mixed up with that deposit. We say that anything less than three years, uh, money that may be needed in less than three years should not touch the share market. So, you know, for example, when I was saving up for my first home. That's an interesting one. So that's not a tip that we've heard um, heard previously. Can you just just bring that right back to the start again and and take us through that one again? Yeah, so because the stock market, and I'm not you know um, reinventing the wheel here. This is like very common knowledge that the stock market tends to crash, and by that I mean a 20% fall or greater before starting to come back. Mm. Tends to crash depending on the studies you look at every four or to seven years. So somewhere in that four to seven year window, you will see the value of your investment go backwards and probably considerably. Mm. Right. So if you if you're trying to time the market and you're thinking, you know, everyone, it seems like a pretty good time to get in the market right now. Well, hey, that one in four years or one in seven years could be this year. And so the best way to ride out that and just kind of smooth that expectation and and versus the returns of the market is to adopt a longer term time horizon. So take that three year minimum approach. So if you have ten thousand dollars now and you want to buy um, a house in eighteen months. You wouldn't put that money in the share market. You would just keep saving um, using the tips that we talked about, but also trying to earn more, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and you you would do that rather than um, trying to put that in the share market for a long, long time. But I'll give you an example of what my, my partner and I did. We've been investing in shares for, I'm going to say 10 years now. And when we decided to save for a home, we didn't touch the money that was in the share market. Mm. So we saved outside of that. Now, we're very fortunate that I started this 10 years ago. And, um, you know, the thing, the reality is that we earn pretty good money and our expenses are insanely low. So when we went to the, when we went to the bank to get finance, they actually came back to us two or three times to say, no, 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 that can't be right. And so our expenses are so low. Yeah, and, so the, yeah, and, and you know, the, well, the banks are doing their job. This was before the responsible lending mm. laws were well, proposed to be wound back. So, um, 
you know, that's that's I guess an example of how we did it. I was comfortable investing in shares. And so what I say to, say to people, like our members come to me a lot, our, our younger members, they might be young professionals, 30 years mm-hmm. old. They're on $80,000 that they might have a partner, they might not. And they're saying, you know, when I've got 40 or 50 grand in cash, I'm not planning on buying a house for a few years, but I, but I want to get started investing. But I also want to keep the flexibility so that if I do want to buy a house sooner than that, I can, what should I do? And the, the default response to that is pretty simple. Put some money aside that's your deposit money that's in a separate high interest savings account and then open your, your online stockbroking account, whatever it might be. And then as your money comes in, a really simple rule of thumb is just put half of your savings in your deposit and half the savings straight into your brokerage account <laughs> so you don't touch either of them. And they don't mix. They don't cross over. So then the, the money that's in your stockbroking account can be used to buy ETFs or shares. And the money that goes into your deposit is just getting tucked away there. You save some more money, maybe put more into your deposit. And my 50-50 rule is only just, you know, just a general rule. You could do whatever you want. You could put 20% into your stockbroking account and 80% into your deposit. And that is perfectly okay. And I, I, I see a lot of people doing that. And I think too, what we're talking about is having a long-term view in the share market as well as in property. Mm. The the one benefit of shares, of course, is that there's what's called liquid, which means that you mm. can sell bits of it. You can sell small small holdings. You can you know, whereas you can't sell a house, a, a, sorry, a bedroom half or a, a you know a, a carport or a bathroom <laughs> or something. Once you commit to that house, it's it's what's called a lumpy investment. You can't get out of it very mm. simply and and certainly not cost effectively. So there's lots to be said in terms of a long-term, um, you know, to setting yourself up long-term for, for financial um, fitness, which is the theme of this this episode, but also financial wealth, wealth creation. Let's face it, we all want to be, you know, comfortable, don't we, mm. at least, right? Mm. If someone, though, and we'll get in a minute to the problem is, of course, you know, if you save forty thousand dollars for a deposit, unless you can, uh, unless you've got a really good income, um, and can actually get access to the the government's five percent, you know, home saver deposit scheme, or what? God, mm-hmm. I get confused myself in all the names <laughs> of these. Um, or your parents go guarantor, or or you pay LMI uh, in order to buy a property. You might be really hamstrung. So the the type of property that you can buy is really limited by the amount of money that you can save for a deposit, and obviously then what you can borrow, and then what you can and repay. And if it turns out that you really have such a tiny budget, yes, you can afford to buy something, but it's not going to be very good. You know, it's going to be tiny, like a studio apartment. Oh, and actually, you won't be able to get that anyway because banks won't lend you for something <laughs> so small. But, <laughs> but you know, it could be a really little bit one better in a right next to the train line um, on a main road in a, in a grubby little suburb. I mean, it, it could be that, yes, you can afford it. Yes, you'll be able to find a tenant for it, but is it a good investment? Is it a good property to own? Or you might even want to live there, but then it's unsafe or, you know, and fundamentally you, you'd be better spending your money doing something else with your money, I should say, rather than spending your money. So how can people make up, because one of the benefits, obviously, of owning your own home is that, A, you live in it, or you can, B, that, you know, you're borrowing a lot of money, so you've got what's called leverage, which means you've got more money and actually supposedly working hard for you as long as it's a good asset. But that's not possible for everyone. And this is the thing that we, Megan and I, as property people, it's rare to hear property people say, no, there are times not to buy property. Mm. There are people that shouldn't buy property and that you'll be worse off financially if you buy property. So what would you suggest to people like that to say, but but I'll be missing out on owning my own property, my own home. How can they still build wealth? Mm. 
Yeah, I, I often ask my barber when the best time to get a haircut is, and he almost always <laughs> says today. Um, so, and, and that's something that you get a lot, right? And I think um, the people that are being honest with you are the people that will tell you uh, something that's not in their interests. Mm. And so, um, you know, for a long time, so back, I'm, I'm, I've just turned 30, so I'm, um, I'm starting to lose my hair now, so I'm getting a bit on, but... <laughs> Um, I remember when Stop I was it, a- Owen. So I remember I remember when I was around about 21, 22, and I had enough money to buy a house. I'd, I'd worked really hard through uni. I worked effectively full-time while studying and through and also through high school, I was working five shifts a week at the local supermarket. So I was working really hard for everything that I that I had. And I remember asking around, you know, what I should invest in. A lot of people that own investment property told me to buy investment property. Mm. And, um, but then I was reading Warren Buffett books mm. and he was saying buy businesses. So oh. I, I ended up going down the path of what Warren Buffett advocates for. And what, what my, my point here is that I didn't end up buying the house because it wasn't right for me. And I thought that there was more, um, you know, wealth creation potential early on in my life with businesses. And the reason why I say that is because I thought I could take more risk at that age. So I thought to myself, I'm, I can afford to, like, to, to live with the regret of potentially not buying a house and things going up. So that's, that's okay. I can live with that. If property goes up, I can live with that. But I'm going to take a risk. So I'm going to take a risk and buy some businesses. And what I mean by businesses, I mean shares because shares just represent ownership of businesses. Mm, yeah. And so- Um, So that's what I did. And I did that from a young age. And so at that stage in my life, buying a property wasn't right for me. Um, You know, I was still finding myself in my career and those types of things. So there are definitely times in people's lives where buying a property isn't right, even if it's not for financial reasons. Mm. And so then if it's, you know, if you're thinking, okay, I don't want to buy in the suburb that, you know, I I, I can't buy in the suburb that I want to buy in. Um, maybe there's another opportunity for you. And that's where this podcast is fantastic because you can help people do that. And you've got the short course there to help people question themselves and find out where they can buy and and think about that. Um, And so those are great resources that you should be taking advantage of. But, you know, there is is a a thing to be said for rent vesting. So Mm. whether you are renting and then you buy in another location or I don't know what the word for it would be, but maybe if you're you rent and you invest in the stock market. Mm. Uh, maybe it's still rent vesting, but a different yeah. type, I guess. Yeah, different asset and, class. Yeah, and and you can do that too. You can buy ETFs, exchange traded funds, mm. which are very simple investments to make on the stock market. Um, and you can you can do that. And there are benefits to that. Like Veronica said, they are more liquid. So if you did need money for whatever reason. They are available in your brokerage account. You can buy different things. So you can invest in overseas shares. You can invest in um, Australian shares. You can invest in what we call real estate investment trusts. So these are like um, big investors that go into property mm. and you can buy you know, investments in that organization, that REIT or real estate investment trust. And so you can do those things as well. And that's all available via the stock market. So I think um, Barefoot Investor called it postcode povos, where you live in one suburb and you buy in another. And um, then, you know, there's other people who advocate for real estate investment trusts and, and doing it that way too. So there's many different ways to do it. And the, the really important thing is just understanding that if this, the, the market, the property market does go up, that's okay because you're still investing in something else as long mm-hmm. as you're investing in something. So this is where it comes back to accumulate assets. I've heard another definition of that 
buy something with an exclamation mark. Just buy something. As long as you're doing something with your money, then that's going to be doing better than doing nothing. I think and it has to be well thought out, though, doesn't it? And well advised. <laughs> Absolutely. Like, so, don't just go and buy you know, Bitcoin no. or something <laughs> yeah, like that because you've heard about it We're not big advocates of buy anything just because. <laughs> no, but the, the, my point is more so that- If you don't buy, act. Buy, yes, buy mm, something act. Act that is an asset. Mm. And, you know, whether that's, in my case, it was buying businesses via shares or whether it's, you know, a first home buyer buying a property or whether it's a property investor or whatever the case might be, it's good to know that you're investing in something and that will give you comfort if whatever else you could have invested in does go up. I think one, um, you mentioned rent vesting, and I think that's great that you've mentioned that because a lot of people who can't afford the home that they want to live in or the location they want to live in, they look to rent vesting as an mm. alternative. And we did an episode a couple couple weeks back. So if you want to look at that rent vesting uh, episode or the options, if you have if you can't afford to buy where you want to be, um, that is one of the options. Now, but one of the options that we didn't discuss in that episode was absolutely investing elsewhere, not in property. And I think one of the big risks mm. with rent vesting is that you still are, it's still lumpy. It's one property that you're buying. Mm. And then down the track, if your circumstances change or your partner up or you get more money, more income, you can afford the, ha- the home that you want in the location that you want. If, you know, unless you're earning a lot more money, you're probably not going to be able to do that without selling the property that you bought as a rent vesting option. And if you didn't do that very, and then trading property is really expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, and so therefore, if you got the option to actually invest in the share market instead, um, and with guidance and with research and, and you know, um, then absolutely that's a legitimate thing to consider. And I think that that's something that we really want to get into the discussion with first home buyers. It's not property or die you know that you, you that if you you're not a failure if you haven't bought a property mm. because you actually can lose money in property so easily and it's just it's not it's a one-way ticket for some mm. people and it's not a very pleasant journey that they just bought the one-way ticket on so we want to make sure that they make really good decisions and actually don't get themselves in that situation which is mm. why we want to talk to you about this <laughs> And, and you hit the nail on the head, Owen. It wasn't the right time for you to buy a property. Mm. And that's that's a really important factor. It doesn't mean that another time wasn't the right time for you to buy a property. It just simply wasn't that in that phase in your life at that time and with the goals that you had, property was not the vehicle for you to actually achieve the goals that you wanted to achieve. And I think that's just invaluable advice for, for people to take on board. Just because everyone else is buying a house doesn't mean you have to. Mm. Yeah. Actually, Owen, you also said one thing that I thought was interesting. You said that you, it's almost like you're saying that buying a property wasn't risky, wouldn't have been risky at that stage, but investing in shares was risky. And I guess that's the thing that too, we just want to put the spotlight that actually buying property is risky Mm. too. Yeah. It's, it's, Mm -hmm. it's, and, but whereas we sort of all brought up to think bricks and mortar, it's safe. You know, you can still mm. drive past it. You know, it's always there. Um, and let's face it, you know, it is less volatile than the, sh- the share market, certainly, um, but it is still risky. And I think mm. that that's a really important thing that, you know, uh, you know, if you listen to us too much, you would never buy a property. But you know, <laughs> <laughs> if you do it right, you can do so well in life. You know, can you really be very be, be very secure? Mm. I might just quickly loop in two points there. Uh, what you both said, Veronica and Megan. So the first one is that, you know, with property being such a large purchase, 
And if we go back to the idea of the marshmallow or the, the kid with the lollipops, the first one that you actually purchase is actually the most important. Oh, yeah. So, so, so the thing Absolutely. is with stocks and with the, um, your you know share market, uh, your brokerage account, you can start with $500. Mm. So from that perspective, you know, buying something, you know, I, I would hope that for most people listening to this, if they did lose $500, it's not life or death. Mm. But if you go into a, a tragic circumstance with a property and you think, oh, my Lord, what have I done? That's a big deal, yeah. right? And then to, to loop in with my experience, the the idea of risk. So when I meant risk before, what I was referring to was the risk that I got it wrong. So the mm. risk that I wasn't happy investing in, in businesses or shares. As in that Rather, choice. Yeah. yeah, my choice. Mm. And I would have to live with that, the mm. risk that I would regret it. Yeah. And I took that risk early on um, because there was, let's say, you know, there's a 20% chance that the risk was that I regret it. Well, you know, there's the other 80%, which could actually mean that it was a good decision. Mm. So I wanted to make sure that um, I gave that a shot while I was younger because once I had kids and and done and started a business and done all that sort of stuff, I probably wouldn't have had that flexibility to make up for lost time. Yeah. And so that's what I was thinking about with risky. I've heard some, don't worry, I've heard some shocking um, first home buyer <laughs> stories. And that's why I love resources like this. And I'm not just saying that because I'm on show. I'm such a big advocate for anyone that educates people, especially on first home buying, because mm. you see it go wrong, you know, People just like just just they just don't get it, and yeah. it's so scary and for you them. Often don't find that out until ten years down, five exactly. years down the track when you go yeah. to sell it. Yeah, and that's the, that's the really scary thing about property and always shares too, but more so probably because of that high upfront cost. Um, it takes a lot of effort to get one, mm. and then it also you know it, it it can be risky. So you want to do it right, and that's why you know courses. Uh, short courses, any type of course is such a brilliant resource for property buying because let's say, I don't know, let's just say, I know you, the, the course you've got at the moment is pretty low <laughs> price, I think $39, but the but let's say you had a $1,000 course, right? If that $1,000 saves you $50,000, then that is money well spent. Or if it yeah. makes you $50,000 more because you bought in the right location, then that is money well spent. And people don't think like that because, again, it doesn't have that instant gratification. Mm. What do you mean I've got to put in the work? What do you mean there's no guarantee of an outcome? Well, that's the type of thing that that you've (laughs) got to do to make good decisions and make sure that the risk is as low as possible. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, That's I think we're going rant. to uh, we're going to get a grab out of that one, Veronica, because uh, you've actually just pre-sold our your first home buy guide course, which is in in the vicinity of the range you're talking about. And I, I certainly think that people will be saving themselves when it, well in excess of of fifty thousand dollars, sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars if oh they make God. the wrong decision. Yeah. Now, Veronica, I just want to I, I've got a lot out of this, and I've been taking mm. notes, so I just thought I'd recap some of the key takeaways that I've got from our discussions with with Owen, and then and then throw to you. To see if there's anything else you want to add or if I've missed any pertinent points. And the first one was the emergency fund. Mm. I think that's such a great piece of advice. Everyone focuses on saving the deposit, but having the emergency fund, you know, that three, six months worth of expenses for, for the unexpected, just a great piece of advice. Earn more, spend less. <laughs> Pretty basic, you know, but it, it's real, isn't it? Rather it than works. saying, "Well, how can I save quicker? What, you know, what are some some ways that I can accelerate that saving? Earn more, you know." And you gave us some really good examples of how you could do that. Um, saving twenty percent of your income is a really good um, base 
line to work with uh, and, and it's a good, I think, going forward, you know, that's such a good habit to get into. It's mm. a behavioural change to, to save. Um, taking a three-year view of the share market. Now, it's the first time I've really heard someone sort of articulate that and, and give that as a piece of advice. We talk about property having a, you know, at least minimum five-year mm. time frame, if not seven or ten, probably preferable. But three-year view of the share market is a really good one. And um, and you are absolutely preaching from the same choir book when you say that the first property purchase is the most important one. And and, and certainly in the course and, and, and everything that we talk about, it is getting that first one right because if you save so hard to get that money and, and you've made the sacrifices and you, I mean, you've done all of that work, then you need to make sure that getting the asset selection right in the first first point, you know, the first time that you purchase is is um, is critical. Mm-hmm. Um, Veronica, is there anything I've missed there that you picked up? I don't think you have. And, oh, and it's been so good having you come on and really just hit all these great points and really, really practical stuff. As I said before, we will put the link in the show notes for your courses because there's a bunch of things there, uh, really great stuff. And it's so generous of you because, you know, we're charging $39 for our <laughs> Where to Buy workshop. We And, and actually the beta uh, Where to Buy um your first home uh, sorry, the guide. beta your first home buyer guide course is seven forty nine, and that's still available in beta form, which is actually less than it will be when we finally get, get it all recorded at a, you know and re-recorded, reproduced. Hmm. Um, still available at the moment because we st- <laughs> we get, we're so busy at the moment we haven't actually got a chance to finish it. Um, and you're much more generous than that. You actually do a lot of give a lot of courses for free. So um, we would encourage people to jump on there and um, and and take advantage of those and really learn some of those basic things so that you can make better decisions. So thank you again, Owen, for joining us today. Thanks, ladies, for having me on. I, I look forward to seeing where this goes. And um, just well done for all the education you're providing to people. It's um it's a great thing to see, and I think we need more of it. So kudos to you both. Thank you. Great. Appreciate your time. In this episode, we've covered a very small part of our 10-step online course for first-time buyers. If you would like to learn more about the process and how to buy without making a mistake, then head over to our website, www.homebuyeracademy.com.au. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you won't miss an episode. And if you like what you've heard today, please give us an iTunes review. Five stars would be wonderful. It will help others find us as well. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found this really useful. And if you have, please share the love with others who you know are in the same boat. We'll be back next week with some more priceless stuff.